Good day to all of our investors and general listeners. This is the Rudd Commentary. My name is Josh Rudd, and I'll be your host on this presentation today. And with me again is Jack Herr, our fabulous trader and the genius behind our very successful rotational internship program here at the firm, Jack, which we just recently got to start back up. Yeah, just got a new intern in, so that's exciting. For our new listeners who may not be familiar with our firm, the Rudd Company is a wealth management firm headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. We manage investments for clients across the country and specialize in active portfolio management, retirement planning, and the setup and management of employer-sponsored retirement plans. Jack, I know our regular listeners are eager to hear your update from the trading room before we introduce our topic and very special guest today. So tell us how things have been going. So the first thing I want to talk about on the market update is the overall economic picture and just a quick jobs update. Adding 11 million jobs over four months was at a little quicker pace than expected. That's always good to see there. But the latest jobs report may be pointing to a bit of a slowdown in economic recovery. Payrolls increased by less than expected last month, and that was mostly due to government job cuts and people leaving the labor force. Could be for a number of different reasons there, but I think mainly people just getting discouraged and leaving the workforce. And then also things like online schooling, maybe a parent has to stay home. So those are a few things that come to mind. The unemployment rate did decline to 7.9%, which again was partially due to people leaving the labor force. We'll continue to monitor that number pretty close. On the uh, Retail sales and manufacturing side of things, those are two indicators we frequently look at month to month. The retail sales continue to recover at a similar rate, slow, steady, and manufacturing has finally come back into an expansion stage for the first time in six months. We also have consumer confidence. That's something we talk about a lot on this podcast and actually continues to increase over the last month, even after the extra unemployment benefits decreasing. We'll continue to monitor that number, especially as Washington kind of discussed stimulus. But it was good to see consumer confidence remain high over the last month or so. It is. And your point about the jobs market is very interesting to me because just at the firm level here, this is the most difficult time we've ever had in hiring, just the struggles uh, attracting new talent to the firms. It's it's very odd. You know, we see these unemployment rates that are high, and yet we're having the hardest time attracting new employees to the firm. So I definitely think that the stimulus has an impact on that and some of the benefits that are currently being sent out. And I, and I look forward to getting past this where we can all enjoy a normal, robust economy. Yeah, I, th- I think we all look forward to that. Um, but you mentioned stimulus there, and that's kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about, and specifically its effect on the market over the last month. We've had stimulus discussions. they pretty much stalled. There's kind of a gap between what each party wants in Washington and even the, you know, the stuff changes day to day. But the current administration said yesterday that they will not work on more stimulus until after the election. The market kind of took a turn for the worse there. That was a big change. Big change, Jack. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really what we're seeing for those clients who aren't paying attention as much to the market is news around stimulus is really causing some big swings, some volatility. We talked about that in last podcast. As we all know, this news changes day to day, like I said, and we could get some better news today and that could be good for the market. Really the point I just want to make here is to expect volatility in the market as a lot is riding on stimulus right now. And, And just don't be nervous if you see these big swings in the market. 
I think it's a, another good time to bring up. I know I've repeated this in the past, but I can't really emphasize enough how valuable the information was in our podcast on the election. There's a lot of good information for long-term investors and how you know we often see the short-term volatility heading up to the election. But please go back and listen to that because you know we provide historical data to really emphasize the importance of staying in the market at a time like this. I'm really glad you brought that up. That is definitely a resource that the investors and, and really anyone that's listening today can go back and take advantage of. And also your comments about uh, the stimulus really are very relevant to what we'll be talking about today, not only with asset prices increasing, but uh, what our guest speaker is going to be focusing on today as well, Jack. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about probably be a good segue into asset prices and what they've done over the last few years is I really just want to talk about interest rates, the Fed and inflation. We've seen over the last few months, the Fed has kept interest rates low. They've pretty much blatantly said that they're not going to raise them over the next two or three years. So oftentimes in history, Josh, when we see these low interest rates for a long period of time, followed by periods of inflation and certain asset prices. So just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that and where we are today. Oh, man, you've, you've hit a nerve with me, as, as you may know. Um, the current environment that we're in is unprecedented in many ways, but interest rates being held this low for so long, I think longer than many of us ever expected. It's very unnatural in this type of market, a free market. It's just a little concerning. And, you know, you brought up inflation and, and let's talk a little bit about that because inflation is, you know, we've talked about it being the thief in the night. It's very sneaky and it hides. And we look at certain measures of inflation, a certain basket of goods that the consumer will buy. We look at things like fuel and the prices of groceries, and those are all major components. But I think what's very telling right now is that we're looking at assets across the spectrum increase in, in price. And you don't have to look any further, Jack, than just the real estate market. Over the past six months, in the middle of this pandemic, it's, it's gone crazy. These homes and, and primary homes and secondary homes, vacation homes, you would think that with the unemployment rate as high as it is, that we wouldn't be selling real estate. It's just very odd. It's a very unnatural environment that we're in. And sometimes, Jack, I wake up and think I'm in the twilight zone. It's it's very strange to me, And but it's the reality. And, and you made a really good point. Low interest rates incentivize investors to go out and take risk as they try to earn higher rates of return, either through growth in earnings per share or through simple interest payments from interest-bearing investments like CDs and treasury bonds or even dividend-paying stocks. So it's something that we're watching very closely. Uh, I can tell you here at the firm, you know this, we've talked a lot about increasing the quality of the portfolio that we have, not only just in interest-bearing investments and bonds and fixed income, but also in equity. We want to make sure that the companies that we own have the ability to continue to pay those dividends, which we think are going to be increasingly important as these low interest rates hang around for an unknown period of time. And we also want to make sure that should the market, and free markets do this, and it's completely natural, should the market try to correct some of these imbalances and inefficiencies, that we're in a position to not only be resilient, but take advantage of that. And another thing I thought about when you were talking is what about the money supply? I mean, I talked about stimulus from a fiscal perspective, but the monetary policy is, you know, the Fed's willing to add public securities to their balance sheet now. So a lot of money going into the system, won't that eventually lead to inflation as well? 
Jack, that's a really good question. I think those are really good points. And, and I don't want to get off into the weeds here because I think that topic can get very complicated for our listeners. You're exactly right. The Fed's balance sheet is much larger than it was. We are seeing a different type of response in the last two major issues that we've seen. Uh, this one and, and then about, uh, what, 11, 12 years ago. Without going into the details of that, I, I will say that I do believe the policy response is going to eventually lead to higher inflation. And it's concerning to me that, as you indicated earlier, that Powell's communicated to the, the marketplace that interest rates and that policy is virtually going to be unchanged for the next several years. Those are some of my major concerns, and I believe it's manifesting itself in different pockets of the economy. And it's just created that very unnatural environment with high unemployment, real estate prices, and and sales of some of the things we're going to be talking about later today and on our second segment of this topic on our next podcast. It's causing those asset prices to move higher. Completely agree. That's all I had today. Like I said, I think that's a good segue into what we're discussing. Should we present our guest? Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm really excited about this topic. But thank you very much for that uh, market update, Jack. So uh, today we're going to explore fine arts specifically, in addition to many other non-financial assets that investors have used in the past to diversify their portfolios. And Jack, just to run through some of those, I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard the term investment grade wine. A lot of investors have also put money into antiques, historical documents and currency. I find that very interesting. And one of my favorite topics that'll be a focus of part two of this series, which is classic cars. What I'd like to do is move into a different asset class that we've heard a lot about from our investors over the last several years, and that's art. And I'm really excited about our guest today. Shelly Matthews is an art historian, advisor, and certified appraiser of personal property with the International Society of Appraisers. Her company is SCM Fine Art Consulting, which she founded in 2006. And Jack, uh, you'll also appreciate knowing that she's an adjunct professor of art history at TCU, where she earned a bachelor's and master's degree. She was a researcher also at the Kimball Art Museum in early 2000s and the curator of a private collection from 2004 to 2006. So I basically think it's safe to say that she's an expert in all things art. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you. Happy to be here. One of the things that, that we've been talking about earlier, Jack and I, on this program is how our investors have shown an interest in non-financial assets over the last couple of years. I'm very interested to hear about some of the benefits of owning art for some of our investors who might be listening today. Well, I have to say, I think one of the best things about owning art in terms of investment is that you get to enjoy it every day. You know, when I'm waking up having my morning coffee, I don't, I don't get to gaze in adoration at my ExxonMobil stock or something like that that's hanging on the wall. But if I have a lovely impressionist painting or maybe a sculpture that I find particularly appealing, it's such a wonderful place to invest, to, to have something that's a little bit different. I think that the best thing about it is living with it and enjoying it. But you're right. You know, we stare at our investment statements and <laughs> maybe we take a withdrawal at some time in the future. But getting to enjoy the beauty of art, I think, is something that is very interesting and unique. I am interested, though, about price appreciation in your industry. Let's say over the last couple of decades, you know, Jack and I talked about earlier just the growth of the money supply here in the United States over the last couple of decades. And really where this topic has come up for us, Shelley, has been because a lot of investors are 
interested in looking for other alternatives and places to store that hard-earned wealth. I'm interested to know if you've seen price appreciation similar to what we've seen in other financial assets over the last couple of decades. It's an interesting question. I'm not familiar with you know, with the market for, shall we say, classic cars or wine. But in terms of art, if you do it the right way, if you have a good strategy, if you have good advisors, financial advisors, attorneys, art advisors, and you come up with a sound plan, then generally speaking, whatever a collector may have purchased 10, 20 years ago should at a minimum be holding its value. I think you see appreciation in certain sectors more than you do others. One thing that we've really seen over the last 20 years is the rise of contemporary and ultra-contemporary art. And I'm more of a traditionalist. My original expertise was in European old masters, Renaissance, Baroque, things like that. And the demand for those types of things is shrinking. And we see these new people entering the market, right? Younger people coming along. And so there's a, a shift in taste and towards these newer art forms that are not your grandparents' paintings and things. That's not to say that these traditional artworks, like a good old master painting, is actually a pretty safe investment. Again, if you do it right, if you've done your homework, if you invest in a good name and a good work of art with all of the right accoutrement, you're going to do well overall. No one's going to guarantee that, but generally speaking, if you do your homework, you're probably in in a good place. Like you said, it sounds like that's a place where you'd want to have a little bit of guidance in Mm -hmm. choosing which area, I mean, we look at it, Jack Wright, as the sector that you want to be in or the type right. of asset class, but that comes to mind as extremely important, especially in art. And to follow up with that question, is it easy to track price appreciation? I know in the stock market, we can easily go online and see how our portfolios are doing. Or, um, how, do, how does an art investor look at those type of things? Well, it's not quite as straightforward. There's really no equivalent. You know, we can't just kind of get online and right. see mm-hmm. in the morning what something is worth. And I think that that's because art is just not, I believe the term would be liquid. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to just sell. I can't wake up one morning and decide I, I'm going to sell the Matisse that's hanging on my wall. You have to do that very carefully and there's a lot more time involved. So to that end, to know what a collection is worth, really the short answer is you need an appraisal. You know, value really is a little more subjective in our field and it can depend on a lot of different factors. Yeah, you really, you basically need an appraisal to know just at any given moment what it's worth and and what it's worth in a different context. Something for insurance purposes is different than the cash you could pocket from selling something. So you have different points of value. Do you find that that's the case with art enthusiasts that are looking to sell an entire collection? For example, in the wine industry, I can tell you that investors that are holding valuable portfolios of wine, they don't want their collections to be picked apart. They don't mm-hmm. want a, a dealer to come in and just grab, you know, all the first growth Bordeaux and, you know, that are going to resell very well. They want to sell a lot of them. They want to sell that portfolio as a, as a group. It's actually worth more in many, many cases. Is that the same with, say, one particular artist or time period? That's an interesting question. I don't think so, but I, I have some caveats. So for example, Salvador Dali, If you are in the print market, Salvador Dali prints are extremely problematic. To say that that market is rife with forgeries is an understatement. So if any reputable dealer or auction house is going to sell Salvador Dali prints, they want to do it in an entire portfolio. So they don't want one offshoot, you know, one print here, one there. They want the entire suite 
of what he created, be it a group of 10 or 20 or whatever it may be. The flip side to that is if you're looking at most other art classes or, or groups of art, you really wouldn't want to unload everything at once. A good example are Matisse drawings. So a few years ago, the Matisse estate released a big group of drawings by him. And what happened as a result is that the price, if you owned a drawing that was similar, your value went down because now there's so many readily available on the market. And so anyone who owned that type of drawing would have to hold on to it for longer and kind of ride that out and not sell in that moment if they didn't have to. Then you have cases where, for example, the Rockefeller sale, if you have a great name attached to it and it's an entire estate, there is something to be said for selling that. But that's usually a collection that's made up of several different artists and types of work. So that can be a real benefit. I guess the answer is it depends. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm glad you touched on this last thing with the big name attached. Obviously, that does add some value. Are there any other main factors when looking at art investments that really add value um, I think about the wine market that Josh brought up where as wine ages, it tends to get more expensive and add value to that bottle of wine. Is there an age factor anything else like that? Definitely. And the answer again is it depends and it's very complicated. When we look at factors that affect value in the art world, there's kind of three general categories, I would say. You have individual tastes and preferences, right? So the people who are participating in this market They can have different thoughts and ideas, and sometimes you get a crazy fad. It's not fine art, but you remember Beanie Babies back in the 90s and everyone wanted that, right? That that (laughs) garbage. And now you couldn't, you know, you you couldn't sell one if you wanted to. So there can be fads, and that can affect certain things. You have external forces like this current pandemic, economic recession, things like that, or the 9-11 attacks. You know, shortly after that happened, there were supposed to be big sales in New York. Those were affected. I think the category that you're really speaking to, the one that's interesting to me, are the intrinsic characteristics of any given work of art. So things that are internal to them. And whenever we are analyzing something, trying to decide if this is an acquisition that that we should go after, or if I'm appraising a collection or a work of art, these are the types of characteristics that I'm looking for. You know, what makes this Monet worth X, Y, or Z? You have to start with authenticity. You know, you don't go buy an Impressionist painting or a Picasso on eBay from some dealer in Romania, right, who says he has paperwork. You want to make sure that that you have the right paperwork. And so for each artist, there will be a governing body that authenticates. And it may be a certificate. It may be this or that. With the case of, of a Matisse sometimes or a Picasso, if you've lost the certificate that comes from that governing body, you've got to ship the work over to Paris and the authenticator has to look at it and sign the back of it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's quite a process. And so you want to make sure that you know, or whatever artist you are considering, you know how to make sure it's authentic. You need to know where to go, how to look these things up and make sure that it's good. And that kind of goes hand in hand with title. And we've seen a lot lately, well, in the last 20, 30 years with Nazi looted art. And that's a particular research area of mine. You want to make sure that you have done your due diligence, that something you are buying it was maybe in Europe in the 30s and then lost for a while, you want to make sure that it wasn't looted. Or if it's, uh, let's say it's a Mayan ceramic piece, you want to make sure it didn't come out of the country illegally. So there's some legal issues there. Uh, but once we kind of assume, let's assume that all of that's good, authenticity is good and, and the title is good and clear, there can be all kinds of little factors. And the best thing that will drive value is to say, 
is this work of art a good representation of this artist's work? Did it come from a good period? You know, when Van Gogh is in the south of France with Gauguin, you know, these types of periods. Or was this a day where maybe maybe Renoir's eyesight was getting bad towards the end of his career? Maybe the brushwork looks all muddled and it's not a very good representation. Still a Renoir, but if we're going to spend the money, let's really get the best example of what any given artist has available at that time. Condition is a really important factor. You want to make sure that it's in good shape, that it hasn't had a lot of work done to it, or that whatever damage you may see or whatever condition you see is appropriate to the age. Make sure that you know what to expect. You know, if you're buying, let's say, a sculpture that you plan to put outdoors, what's involved with that? What kind of steps do you have to take to protect it? You kind of want to know all of these things. And so when you have a good set of advisors around you, they can help you understand what matters for each artist. You even get down to tiny little quirks and nuances like, well, if this Chagall painting has a fish that's a little too big, that's bad. Or if the moon is not in the right place, that can that can knock the value a little bit. And it sounds really funny. Well, you talked about it earlier. If you're, <laughs> if you're investing large sums of money in a particular piece of art, you want to make sure it's not only the highest quality, but it's pleasing and it's what you want. Right. All these factors have to come together. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the cost in addition to just the, the price I think that you're paying for that, but you were talking about authenticity. And then mm-hmm. in some cases, I, I'm not familiar with art that would be outside, but <laughs> I think about uh, setup and storage and care. Can you talk a little bit about the, the cost of owning? <laughs> Absolutely, because there is so much more that goes into it than the price tag you pay. Sure. Right. And so, for example, when we appraise something for insurance purposes, I'm not just looking at the value of that particular artwork. I'm looking at if we lose this, there's some kind of a damage loss. What was the value of the frame? What about tax? What about shipping? What about a special crate we have to have? What about these art handlers? What if it's something really huge and heavy? And what are all the overhead costs associated? So a good, and this is a a slight caveat, but a a good insurance appraisal will really protect you in that because it, it considers all of those overhead factors. And you have to think about that when you are collecting and establishing a really important group of artworks, whatever the class may be, you have to consider, well, I'm going to be paying some advisors. You should, at least, if you're going to allocate resources, make sure that you have a good team around you. You got to think about tax and shipping, your insurance premiums. You know, you have a special policy for these sure. things. Yeah. Lighting is one thing. You know, if you don't have a proper lighting set up, you may be looking at that. And it's it's actually really interesting just how many tiny niches there are in the art world. You have a whole field dedicated to the best lighting and they are true experts and they what about, can what about, this out. what about security? Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, we, we take it for granted here at the firm because if we deploy $5 million to one particular security, it's held in custody for the benefit of our investors. You know, we don't have to worry about somebody breaking into the trading room and stealing <laughs> shares of XYZ I, I should so, um, You know, the first thing I think about as you're talking on these priceless pieces of art is uh, security. Is that, a, is that a problem in the industry? You mean in, t- in terms of theft, for example? In terms example? of theft and, and I guess forgery. But I, I think what I was thinking about right then was, was theft, security in a home and, you know, in the right place, in the wrong place. Is there a cost associated with that? I think your first line of defense really is a good insurance policy. You don't have to worry. Now, I don't know how sophisticated you want to get. 
you know, the Thomas Crown movie comes to mind, you know, how, how elaborate do you have these big security systems? I have not personally seen that. I know they exist. I know that, you know, for example, museums can do this and why are there pictures, but these great insurance carriers will have entire divisions of individuals who specialize in tracking down stolen works of art. And so you have, that's part of what you pay for when you have a really good policy is that they're really going to go to bat for you and they're going to reimburse you and then they're going to go after these things. So, And I can imagine if you have a unique piece of art, if it comes up for sale somewhere, it's pretty hard to get away with that. Right. We have, <laughs> we have these databases that tracks looted and stolen art. And you sure. can actually, if something has been stolen, you go register it. You register it with the FBI. Interpol has a database as well. So these law enforcement agencies do. And then there's something called the Art Loss Register. And so you can go there not only to search and see if something you're about to buy is actually listed, but you can register something if it's been stolen. So we talked about costs. What I'm kind of curious about is the fees or commissions that you have to pay up front when you buy the piece. I know at the rug company, my job is to get the best price for our clients in the trading room. And a lot of times, you know, there may be some hidden costs. It's my job to be able to see those costs and minimize those for our clients. So how are fees charged in the world of fine art? Well, the most straightforward way to look at that, and there's always some hidden fees, I think, to use that lingo. But unfortunately, the art world is also known for being a bit opaque. It can be difficult. So you may have, let's say you have a broker who doesn't actually own the artwork, but he is obviously brokering the sale. He may charge both parties a commission, but the parties may not know it, or the parties may know it, which is fine. I think a typical broker fee can maybe be 10%. Sometimes it's 20. And sometimes it's very negotiable. Where you can find this a little more upfront in terms of knowing the information is in the auction world. So at auction, most definitely the auction houses charge both a buyer's premium and a seller's commission. The buyer's premium is typically at at the bigger houses, Christie's, Sotheby's, it's around, I think, 25, maybe it's 28% now, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a sliding scale, though. So it may be at any given auction house, let's say it's 25% up to the first 100,000. And then it uh, it changes percentages with each value allotment, I guess, 100,000, 200, and so forth. Uh, then you have smaller auction houses may charge different fees. Sellers' commissions at auction are often negotiable. So if they really want you to consign that fantastic sculpture that you have, they may offer you a great deal and say, well, it won't be 25%. We can do it for four. And it's really enticing. So it definitely pays, again, to have people around you who know the industry, who are aware that we can negotiate the terms. Sounds like, Jack, it's very similar to a lot of fees in our business, too. (laughs) Our business has become much more transparent over the years. But when you're talking about the auction, paying fees both ways, that's something that we've seen a lot. In yeah. our business as well. Especially the differences between, you know, if you're buying or you're selling and, mm-hmm. you know, the su- supply and demand there, <laughs> as always. So, I, you know, I have a follow up question for you, Shelly. One of our roles, and Jack, something he works very hard on the trading desk is really just making our investors an informed buyer. I mean, we can go out and we talk about the difference between the bid and the offer, what we're buying and selling a security ad. And, and we never want to cross the spread. We always want to try to. I get the best deal we can for our clients. So in your in your consulting role, is that something that you do for the clients that you have? Is Are you educating them on price discovery, hmm. fees, things like that? Oh, absolutely. And I will be the first to tell you that I don't always know. I really view my role as, <laughs> it doesn't sound very glamorous, but as a researcher. 
where I'm going to make sure before I tell a client anything, I'll give them all the possibilities, but then I'm going to go find out and I'm going to document and I'm going to talk to multiple sources. I may talk to a colleague at one auction house and then talk to a private dealer friend of mine in New York and say, hey, does this track? This is what I'm finding. I'm thinking this range is appropriate. What do you think? And just having those conversations with other people who are in the market in various capacities, it gives me a complete picture. I can document that and I can take it back to the client. So I don't, I would never just rely only on myself. It's really going to be a matter of let's make sure we check every angle, dot all the I's, cross the T's, get all the information. Yeah. And one thing I think we do here really well is we work a lot with our clients and, you know, we see their different asset classes and see how those differ, how much they allocate to each one. I'm just kind of curious, and we've kind of been working up to this question here. (laughs) What is the minimum investment an art investor has to pay to get a good, high quality, maybe even rare art piece? Or is there even, you know, one set number? I'm sure it's, it's probably relative in a sense, but it's definitely relative. I, you could see that answer coming, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. That's Unfortunately, that's my answer a lot of the time. But it does because the art market is so nuanced and there's so many layers and levels to it. So what may be true in ultra contemporary may not be true for old masters. And it might not be true for photography or for prints and drawings. So again, I'm going to keep coming back to this theme, but it's really important to have a well-planned strategy. I advise clients who buy $5,000 or $10,000 paintings, and I advise people who buy million-dollar paintings. And so you can get something that is important to you, something that you love, and something that will hold its value and hopefully appreciate if you do it right. But I think, you know, if I could just add this too, I think it's important to not put all of your money in one particular painting or one particular artist or even one particular period. Take your time, decide what it is you like. You know, is it European art? Is it this contemporary stuff? Find several different types that you like. And then given your budget, let's figure out which ones to go get, what the appropriate price range is. And that way, in case the bottom falls out for Matisse drawings, to use that example again, you still have these other things that are good for that time being and hopefully into the future as well. And I really like how you've discussed to buy what you like. You've used that term several times when you're talking. And I, I really like that because on these alternative asset classes, one of the things that our investors most enjoy, and I think the reason this topic keeps coming up is because when they can go into their garage and they can sit in their investment and enjoy that, it's much better than having to stare at that on a statement or in a screen. And we find that with a lot of different asset classes. You know, some folks lately have been doing that with second homes and Mm -hmm. the VRBO market has exploded. And we've seen a lot of those real estate opportunities that have come up over the last 10 years. Our investors have not only been able to enjoy them with their families, but they've been able to make a nice handsome gain over a relatively short period of time. I think a lot of it goes back to what Jack and I were talking about earlier, which is the money supply and all this excess capital that continues to slosh around um, <laughs> out there. And a lot of us are just finding places to deploy that capital. It also has to do too, Shelley, with the fact that, that interest rates are just so low. And so we're always looking for alternatives to put capital to work. And mm-hmm. I think that's part of what our firm does is looking for new and, and uh, unique ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And everything that you've heard has been characteristic of everything that we've talked about today. I mean, we've talked about rarity. We've talked about quality. We've talked about being able to actually document. And Mm -hmm. 
And I know that's really important with cars and wine and, and Mike Trout baseball card that we saw go for $4 million a uh, <laughs> couple exciting. of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, sports collectibles are. But um, are there any other, I'm interested, you know, we've talked about a lot today. Are there any other just pointers or rules of thumb that, that you might have for our listeners on our program today? Sure. Uh, so provenance, I think, is important. And it gets back to that whole idea of being very diligent and careful and working with a good team around you that's advising you. And, and not being in any kind of a hurry, there's always a deal to be had. You know, unless it's the one rare Leonardo da Vinci that went for $450 million a few years ago, that's probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But otherwise, generally speaking, if you take your time and you're diligent and careful, you will be able to find the right artwork for you and for your collection. I would also say, do your homework. Don't be afraid to walk away. I jokingly tell my friends and family, please don't buy vacation art <laughs> unless you happen to be in Paris on vacation. But I think it's it's risky to do those spur of the moment buys. You know, you, you're at the beach or you're in you're skiing and you go buy a painting because it looks nice in a gallery. Let's let's take our time and, and really strategize. I think that's so, key. So no, uh, no art on the cruise ship where they're giving you free. Most champagne. definitely not the cruise ship, please. <laughs> yes. Free champagne. That, that can be tough. Oh yeah. You can't explain that to the children who inherit it. <laughs> well, that was wonderful. I really appreciate all the wisdom and, and information. I think it's very helpful for our listeners. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and your business? Oh, well, thank you. I started my company in 2006, SCM Fine Art Consulting here in Fort Worth. We provide, I provide a wide range of services, and I would say appraisals are kind of the bread and butter. It's something I enjoy doing. It's nice to help people determine the worth of their collections, the worth of their objects in a variety of different contexts, estate tax, insurance, damage and loss, things like that. I also really enjoy just working with collectors as a private curator. So advising on buying and selling, but also really managing the collection and I strive to do that in the way that a museum would. I feel very comfortable doing a range of things. I'm also great at putting together these teams. So like I told you, I'm not the expert in everything, and I can't provide all of the services, but I do know where to go and how to assemble a good consortium of experts and conservators. And so it's great to be able to rely on that network and to assemble everything together in a way that a client can really understand well, thank you very much again for sharing information on this topic. This is a very unique topic, and you know, Jack and I were, <laughs> are uh, we're thinking about what we could cover that would really be interesting for our investors to hear that we've talked about over the last couple of months, and we really appreciate having an expert like yourself come on the program today. Thank you. So how can anyone get in touch with you if they have any follow-up questions? You can give me a call. I don't know if anyone still uses the good old telephone, but my number is 214-641-8200. My website is scmfineart.com, and my email is Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, at scmfineart.com. And I really appreciate y'all having me here, and I've learned a lot from you as well. Well, thank you very much, Shelley. And as always, if you enjoyed this program or know other investors that this would positively impact, please share the Red Commentary podcast through email or on social media. We also like feedback on our program and ideas for future topics. So if you have the time, we would enjoy hearing from you. Speaking of future topics, Jack, I would like to make sure we invite our listeners to tune in to part two of this series as we explore my second favorite alternative asset classic cars. And we'll be joined by an expert and highly successful collector in this market. 
Josh, we've been hearing a lot about this part two. Do we get to find out who is our guest speaker? You will have to tune in and see. All right. I look forward to it. All of us here at The Red Company would like to thank you, our investors and clients, for your trust. Thank you for allowing us to be your partner in your long-term financial journey. We take this role very seriously. Thank you very much for listening today. This is The Red Commentary. I'm your host, Josh Rudd. And from all of us here at The Red Company, invest long and prosper. This commentary is distributed for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Nothing herein constitutes any offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy any security. All investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, including the possible loss of principal invested, and nothing herein should be construed as a guarantee of any specific outcome or profit. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any opinions expressed by employees of the Rudd Company are the Rudd Company's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliates. The opinions expressed by guest speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Rudd Company or any affiliates. Guest appearances on this program does not imply the Rudd Company's endorsement of any entity, person, product, service, or investment. All opinions are current and only as of the date of recording and are subject to change without notice.